Jonah. Um, quick recap of the story, just to put it in a, a, a quick nutshell for those of you who don't know the story. Um, God speaks, tells this guy Jonah to go to the big city, uh, a city which isn't part of his nation. He's a follower of God. He's part of God's people, if you like. And uh, he's told to go and speak to this great big city. It's a huge city, probably one of the biggest cities in the world at the time. And uh, he's told to go and take a message to them. We're going to be looking at that message. Uh, So he goes, and there's a storm. And most of you will know the story. You'll probably remember it from some distant... issue in the past maybe you know maybe you've heard somebody uh, joke about it you know Jonah gets swallowed by a great big fish gets spat up onto a beach three days later goes into the city and the story continues from there Uh, and I want to um, I want to just face up right at the very beginning that story Uh, because I guess it has for us living in the 21st century uh, today all sorts of credibility problems doesn't it huge credibility problems. I can understand that. I guess there's initially, there's the the credibility gap naturally. You know, the idea that this guy gets in a ship, uh, gets thrown out, having God having made uh, a storm, and gets thrown into the sea and gets swallowed uh, and gets uh, vomited up onto a beach. You know, there's a credibility gap there, isn't there? Uh, There's a credibility gap when it comes to relevance. You know, after all, this is a story of a guy which is something like 2,600 years ago, uh, around that sort of time, 2,600, 2,700 years ago. Uh, And here we are today living uh, in a pretty advanced world. Surely our world has moved beyond these kind of uh, stories and fables, as many people would consider it to be. And therefore, it's got nothing to say to us today. That's the second problem, which I want to address. I'm not going to address all of these uh, this evening. The third problem is the moral problem. God talks about wickedness. God talks about everybody following and turning to him. Uh, Jonah goes in and he demands that everybody who turns and follows God. Well, he doesn't quite demand that, but that's the outcome. Uh, And so there's the, the, the moral issue of should everybody be called to follow this one God? Doesn't that sound a bit exclusive? Doesn't that sound a bit arrogant? There are many different issues which uh, the story of Jonah really uh, address. And I'm not, I'm not going to deal with all of them this afternoon, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, somebody's bought me a clock, and it's at the back there. I can see it. And uh, I know that the kickoff is half past seven. So we, won't, we definitely won't be uh, dealing with all the issues. But what I want to commit to is I want to deal with all of those issues as we work through this account of the life of a man by the name of Jonah. And one of the things that I want to address is those very credibility issues. I think the only way that we can do that is by, if you like, entering into uh, the purpose and the character uh, of this particular book. Entering into the narrative, the story, the way the, the way the writer captures the story and the various expressions and issues which this story raises. And to understand as we work through that, that yes, it was a message for the people of the day, for those first hearers 2,700 years ago. But it is also a message which has startling relevance for us today. 
Uh, a message which is, if you like, timeless. Yes, of course, the context changes. Nineveh was the most advanced city in the world at the time. It was a city which considered itself well-developed. It considered itself, if you like, the New York or Tokyo of the day. It considered itself to be beyond certain things, which they would have said, we don't listen to the ancients of 2,000 years ago. Uh, But what we find, as we see this story unfolding, is that one of the one of the, the threads that runs through it, right from the very beginning to the very end, is this. That it is God revealing himself to the world. That's the perp, one of the, the key points of this story. In fact, that is the, one of the key points of the whole of the Bible. It is God revealing himself to this world. Now, amazingly, God takes something like four or five thousand years to do that. That's the, around the kind of time that we see unfolding in the, in the account of the Bible. A huge amount of time that God takes to unfold. I want to suggest to you <laughs> that as we work through that, if that is the purpose, if that is one of the reasons why uh, this story has been um, maintained down the years, if this is one of the purposes of this story in the Bible, then perhaps it's got something to say to us even today. What does this say about God? We're going to just deal this afternoon with the first three verses. Let's have a look at those. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. That's the opening phrase. And straight away, we have one of those statements which gives us a context, gives us a focus. Look at the first sentence of this great book. The word of the Lord came. What does that tell us straight away about the God that the Bible is describing? If we take this book of Jonah as an account of God's means of describing himself to us, what do we see? We see that it's a God who speaks. He's a God who wants to show himself. He's a God who wants to reveal himself. It's a God who says, I exist. I exist, and that's one of the purposes. I will show to this particular city, Nineveh, that that I exist through extraordinary events, but I want to show you in 21st century uh, escape, I want to show you that I exist by you being able to reflect. And therefore, some of those credibility issues, some of those challenges that we have... um, they pale into insignificance. God is wanting to say, look, I exist. Now, now straight away I would say, if God exists, then, then many of the questions that we've got problems with, many of those areas which seem so extraordinary, so impossible to believe in, they, they reduce in significance, don't they, if God exists. 
you, do you get the point that this opening sentence is making? The Lord spoke. If God exists, then all sorts of other things become possible, don't they? We live in a world where we, we find even the, even the idea of the existence of God a problem. And yet, if God exists, if there is a greater being outside of this world, a timeless being, if that is true, then many of the issues that we see contained in this book uh, become less significant. The credibility gap begins to reduce. I I was reminded again of the credibility gap um, watching uh, in this past week, Secret Millionaire. Some of you will have seen it. Uh, Somebody who's incredibly rich, been really successful in some area or another, goes back to a part of the world which is really uh, important to them, uh, and they get involved in various charities uh, or or people who are organizing doing good in one way or another, but they keep hidden the fact that they're extraordinarily rich. And then right at the end, they go and uh, they've been impressed with maybe it was, a, it was a group of guys who were doing some really great work uh, in gardening work and all the rest of it with people with learning disabilities, really fantastic work. And he goes into them and he says, um, I, I, I want to give you a check for £50,000 towards the work that you're doing. That's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, but this, the problem is that as far as they're concerned, this guy uh, is a plumber and nothing more. How can, how can a pl- he has no credibility to walk into the greenhouse as it was or the, uh, the potting shed, whatever it is, and say, I want to give you a check for 50 grand. There's no credibility. But, but once he reveals truly who he is, uh, yeah, I might be a plumber, but when I say a plumber, what I actually mean is that I own one of the biggest chains of plumbing supplies uh, and installations in the country, suddenly there's credibility to him walking in and saying, I want to give you 50 grand. You see the difference that it makes. Uh, and what, the, what I would suggest to you is if this opening verse means that we've got to listen firstly to maybe God existing, because that is the starting point of dealing with some of the credibility gaps, some of the things that seem so impossible. It makes some of those other things pale into relative insignificance if God does actually exist. What we actually see here as well, yes, he's a God who speaks, but look at the way he addresses himself, the way this opens up. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. It's really important. It's really important as the story unfolds and as some of the verses that we've, uh, we've read a bit later on. Uh, uh, contrast really with that opening verse. Do you remember where the, the Jonah is in the ship? And uh, we read it a little earlier. Uh, and there's a, a terrible storm, and the sailors are crying out to their gods. Their gods. Uh, and they encourage Jonah, why don't you cry out to your God? In fact, who is your God? And he says, I serve the Lord the God of heaven and earth. And what's used there is a different word for God. It's a personal word. It's a naming of God. God is saying here, I exist not just as some great concept, God, some this this greater power, God. Rather, I exist as the Lord. In the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. A God who has a name. Uh, We many of us probably, I guess, don't know all of 
all of the people here this afternoon, but as we get to know each other, we, we know each other not just as a person, do we? We know each other by name. We get to know each other. We know each other as a person. Uh, there is a relationship that exists because of the uniqueness of us as people. Uh, and what this opening verse says to us is the God of the Bible, the God that we see described in this book, isn't just some great concept of power, this, this being, this other being who we can't get to know. Rather what we see is God introduces himself and he says, I'm a personal God. I'm somebody who you can get to know. You see how relevant that is for this afternoon? The God that is declared 2,700 years ago in this story is a personal God. A God who, who is known. A God who gives himself, if you like, a name. Not just God, Yahweh, the Lord. The Hebrews worshipped Yahweh, a personal relationship. We see that right at, uh, near the beginning of the Bible, the book of Exodus, where, where God reveals himself to his people. And he gives himself a name. I can't really know you, can I? You can't really know me until we know each other's name, until we get to know each other in a deeper, more personal way, in a way which gets beyond recognizing a face, knowing that you exist. The great news of the Bible's description of God and the way that he reveals himself to us is just that. I am a God who you can know. I don't know what your thoughts of God are this afternoon. Um, for, for many who have uh, been experiencing and knowing and following Jesus, the Son of God, as their Lord and their Savior, we've begun to experience and to know and to understand that this God who's described in the Bible uh, is not a big great power out there, but is personal and relational and connected. And what we see here is that that's the God that comes to Jonah and speaks and says, I'm the Lord. Now I want you to go and take a message to this city called Nineveh. A people who don't know me, a people who don't know me as Yahweh, don't know of my existence, have no dealing with me, but I want you to go, and we see in that opening verse, in second verse rather, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach, declare, proclaim, speak loudly against it. That's what preach means. It's, you know, preaching has got this strange connotation now. It's kind of all preachy, isn't it? What is it? It's declare loudly, to herald, to make it known to all, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. There's a contrast there, isn't there? God is saying in that, yes, I'm personal, but what's more, I have a moral quality. There is a moral dimension to me. There is an understanding of what is right and there is an understanding of what is wrong. And as I look at this city, I see wickedness. We need more than anything else a God who sees wickedness. Why? Why do we need that? Why do we need a God who understands and sees wickedness? Imagine a world 
Imagine a situation, if you would, uh, and in fact, I would say that many people believe this to be the case. We live in a world which is, yes, riddled with wickedness. It is. Um, we've just seen it over this past week, haven't we? Uh, it's filled with hatred. Uh, it's filled with pain and uh, people opposing each other. You know, as we've seen people shooting each other, uh, people getting shot. We live in a desperately wicked world. God is not God if he's not bothered by that, is he? What's one of the things that God is saying in this second verse? Yes, I'm a personal God. I'm a God who exists, but I'm a God who is bothered by wrong. I'm a I'm a God who will not continue to allow wickedness to carry on. I find myself, I don't know whether it's getting old, I kind of think back and I remember my dad saying this kind of thing. And I think, yeah, I'm definitely getting old because I start to reflect in the same way myself. I start to look around and think, well, we are in, we're in real trouble. The stuff that is going on in the world today was not the stuff it seems. It, it, it's true that it was, but it just seems as if it's getting worse. It seems as if things are on the decline. I don't think they actually are. I think maybe as, as you just get older, you become more sensitive to it, maybe. You, you, maybe our communication means these days we get, to, we get to hear of a lot more of it. We live in a desperately wicked world. And God says, I am a God who is concerned about that wickedness. I will not allow it to continue. Now, what, what's contained within that? It is, yes, I am a personal God. I am a great, powerful God. I want you to go and speak to that city, he says to Jonah. I want you to speak against that wickedness. Now, the clear implication is, uh, because God can, can do something about it. And that's what we see unfolding in the story, it's a God who can do something about it because they respond in a particular way. But, but what we've got to understand, and this is one of the themes that comes out in the Bible, is God will not allow wickedness to continue uh, ad infinitum without any response. It will not happen like that. That is good news in one sense. It's good news that it cannot just carry on. It's not on this spiral that, that God isn't going to intervene in. Do you see how relevant this becomes? It's, it's this continuous process that God is using to show himself, to describe himself to this world. And that's why this is relevant for us today. It's, a, it's relevant for us today because God says, what you see going on, it's not always going to carry on like this. I will intervene. God who hates wickedness. We need more than anything else a God who is just. A God who is just. A God who is uh, good and righteous. Imagine if God wasn't like that. Imagine if the personal God, the Lord, was not like that. If he was unconcerned or unable to do anything about the wickedness in this world. Now we see that Jonah's response is quite extraordinary. You would have thought, that's a great message to take. But look at his response. 
Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After uh, paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Just imagine the geography. We've got Jonah uh, and and, uh, Nineveh was heading east. He headed west. In fact, he, he headed to a port, we probably, Tarshish, was a port just south uh, of Gibraltar. Just south on that peninsular area around Gibraltar area. He, he headed right across the Mediterranean. It, it, as far as he was making just a huge declaration here, if you want me to go that way, and speak to these people and warn them against their wickedness, if that's what you're calling me to do, I am going to run in completely the opposite direction. In fact, I am going to run as far as I can possibly go. In fact, as far as we understand the world to exist. I'm going to go the other end of the Mediterranean, furthest away that I can possibly get. It's an amazing response, isn't it? But I think it describes, as we'll see it unfolding, that Jonah's just got a heart that wants to run. Just like everybody. We all run for different reasons. Yeah, the people in Nineveh were running, weren't they? It doesn't look like they're running. They're running, they're running away from their conscience. Uh, The sailors are running. They're running to every other god. And Jonah's running, pretending that he can uh, incredibly get outside of the the presence of God, going as far as he possibly can. He's running away. Why is he running? We actually read in chapter 4 and verse 2, we read this. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Basically said, you know what? You've been kind to these people. They've heard your word. And I knew that's what was going to happen. I I I just knew it. You were going to be good. I don't like that. I don't like that you were good. I don't like that you were kind. I wanted you to be clear and faithful to what you said. I want you to deal with wickedness. And I think that there are two kinds of people, therefore, in this world, aren't there? And Jonah and the people describe them both. We can either be incredibly arrogant and self-righteous and believe that we've got to do the right thing and we call everybody to do the right thing, just like Jonah. If I go and tell these people that they've got to do this and they don't do it or God's not going to deal with them uh, and they're going to be accepted and God's going to forgive them. They're not going to be punished for their wickedness. We can be incredibly self-righteous and we can run away from God in our righteousness, in being good, in being incredibly righteous. I'm acceptable in front of God. I can run away from God's mercy and I can be acceptable in front of God because I'm really good. Alternatively, we can run away from God by just disregarding Him completely. 
Yet what we see here is a God who kind of holds all of that together. He recognizes that he's got to be faithful to his goodness, to his righteousness. And yet at the same time, he's got to be kind. He will be kind and compassionate. Gives us a little indication, a little pointer, if you like, a preparation for a God who deals most remarkably with wickedness. A God who engages in a way which surprises us. A God who engages by his son, Jesus, who enters into a world of wickedness. See the way Jonah finally does enter into that world of Nineveh. Jesus, without any, without any holding back, entered into this world, came into this world of wickedness. He stood alongside those who were running from him. Stood alongside, accepted our failures, accepted our, our running, our, our unfaithfulness. But he didn't deal with it in a way which was brush it under the carpet. Isn't it amazing that what Jesus did was he took upon himself that wickedness. He bore it, the Bible says. The story of Jonah, as we begin, is one of the most profound pointers of preparing us, taking us, preparing, if you like, the ground for Jesus. Uh, Jesus who comes into this world. Jesus who expresses himself most perfectly as the Lord who calls against wickedness and yet at the same time bears that wickedness upon himself. As we begin this, and that's really just a, a first few minutes introduction, we've reached a point here where we've, we're beginning to see that God is describing himself to the world. We're seeing that part of this is his revelation. And, and hopefully as we work through this, what we're going to see is that uh, the preparation is being made for the Son of God to come into this world. It's a, it's a hope, a, 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 an amazing hope, a, an amazing footprint in the history of the world preparing for Jesus. 